harvest is surely come. A dry summer didn't come for. Well, welcome to WPCAN's Organic Farm Stand. It is the, what is this, the first Thursday of January. Oh, my God. We are deep We are deep into winter, January 7th. Guy Beardsley, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. You must oh, have. Thank you for giving me a call, right. <laughs> yeah, I just thought I'd drop in on you. Um, you must have your uh, toe warmers and hand warmers on today if you're working outside. Uh, actually, I stepped outside uh, for a couple of times and uh, decided I'd come back inside. There's <laughs> 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 a pretty good breeze up here, with, uh, along with the cold conditions. Uh, I'd like to see some snow on the ground, but uh, unfortunately that's not the case. But uh, we need about four inches of snow over top of the garlic to, uh, to make sure it stays in good shape. Well, good luck. Good luck. I mean, yeah, I can't. That's right. It is good luck, right? I can't. Uh, uh, snow has a different in, uh, sort of function and implication down here on the shoreline. It tends to uh, make life a little bit. Uh, uh, it has it. It, uh, it tends to be not snow. <laughs> There's Chris Ferrier joining in. Uh, yeah. Well, we got the the, the so-called wintry mix the other the other night wintry mix it makes it sound like some kind of festive holiday uh <laughs> you know treat but yeah, until you get out like some kind of like spice coffee or something yeah. wintry mix yeah, yeah. <laughs> mold wine and a wintry mix just right. perfect perfect for winter but anyway we're going to try to be festive we're going to try to keep it light but we do have actually some breaking news and um WPCAN has a policy of uh actually sharing breaking news during regular programming when it happens because uh, we don't want you to have to tune away to other stations to keep up to date on what the world is doing. So I'm going to read that bulletin now. It comes in from Hazel Kahn, our news director. And uh, let me see here. It says um, that uh, this breaking news comes from the Public News Service and it reads, progressive groups are calling for mass protests across the nation at 5 p.m. today, where they say activists will call for immediate action to remove President Donald Trump from office. The group Refri Refuse Fascism is calling on people to take to the streets today, asking them to bang pots and pans at downtown locations at 5 p.m., local time, wherever that may be for you, 
and to demand that President Trump step down. The group Indivisible is also, has also released a statement calling on Congress to impeach Donald Trump once again and to remove him from office and disqualify him from even uh, ever holding office again. As you know, Donald Trump has about 11 or 12 days left in office. Others are asking leaders to invoke the 25th Amendment to declare President Trump unfit for office and to replace him with Vice President Mike Pence until Biden is sworn in on January 20th. Some protesters voiced fear President Trump will try to invoke the Insurrection Act and declare martial law. Uh, interestingly enough, the demonstrations that he instigated yesterday in Washington, which were um, really amounted to, uh, I, I guess, a kind of a terrorist act on, on the U.S. Congress, um, would, would possibly be his justification for uh, uh, implementing uh, the Insurrection Act, but that's, uh, that's the way Trump rolls. Um, this breaking news came to you from the Public News Service. And um, so we'll um, now try to um, get back to programming. However, it is, a, um, I think, a day when even this program, which is not a political program, we don't, uh, we never mention party politics and we never uh, talk about, um, you know, sort of petty political issues uh, on any level. But we do, of course, talk about policy. Uh, on this show, and today we're going to be uh, blessed with two guests, one of whom uh, is Vincent Kay, who is our, our B man, and he'll be here to talk about the battle and uh, probably adventure of keeping bees alive in the winter. I think he's out in Woodbrook today, West Westbrook, I think he's out today. So Vincent Kay will be joining us in a few minutes. And then our old friend and um, my personal hero, Tara Cook-Littman, will be with us uh, a little after 12.30 to talk about one of um, jo uh, Joe Biden's appointments that pertains to this show, and that is Tom Vilsack to the appointment of Secretary of Agriculture. He'll be in charge of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. <clears throat> Tara Cook-Littman takes issue with that appointment. And we'll hear all the reasons for that uh, when she joins us at 1230. If I haven't mentioned it before, my name is Richard Hill, and Chris Ferriero is here with me in the studio. Nice to have some company for a change. Uh, Guy Beardsley on the phone from Shelton. And um, so um, I just want to say, give us all an opportunity to comment on what happened yesterday in the nation's capital. And um, I don't know, Chris, if you have any comments, if you, you want to... <laughs> Well, I, I, I could read mine. Or, or, um, yeah, but didn't you just say that we normally don't have political discussions yeah. during the show? But uh, yeah, it was um, everything you just, I'm, I'm in agreement basically with uh, what you just said. Um, well, the, that, that was a news bullet. Right. So, right, so right. That, that was not my personal opinion that I just read. But I do have a, I do have a perspective, yeah. and it, I don't think it's really political in terms of party politics. I think it has to do with the survival of our democracy. And so I'll just proceed with it, and um, I, I apologize to my co-hosts if... Uh, the, oh, no, it's fine, because I, it's, it's a hot topic. It's good to discuss. Well, I think it's, um, it's, it's almost... It would be remiss... 
for us to launch into a, a, a festive holiday farm program without acknowledging that the world exists outside yep. of, of, of that topic. And so I just wanted to say, re reiterate, that this is not a political show, and we studiously refrain from getting into party politics. But I personally can't be on these airwaves without commenting on what happened in Washington, D.C. yesterday. I've heard it called an insurrection, sedition, an attempted coup, a bullet aimed at the heart of democracy, and I have to say all those are true. Uh, but to this uh, uh, list, I would add the word terrorism, an attempt to attack, attack and intimidate the people in charge of the legislative branch and to strike fear in the rest of us to advance their political aims. We uh, now know who and what the biggest threat to domestic order is, and I truly hope that the FBI and the Justice Department call this out for what it is, domestic terrorism, and they need to confront it as such. And uh, so in the, in the coming days, the, the reaction to uh, the breaching of the, uh, the, the Capitol, the, the breaking of windows, the brandishing of firearms, the uh, vandalism in uh, congressional offices, the uh, utter uh, arrogant disregard for the smooth-running wheels of government that was displayed by thousands of, um, I, I guess you'd have to call them terrorists, uh, that happened yesterday, is a shocking event that every American should be alarmed about. And I'll stop there. And, yeah. uh, Chrissy, if you have anything you want to Sure. Add to um, I'm just kind of thinking because... Um, yeah, whatever. It's uh, we we could talk for about this for a while. Try to keep it brief. Um, you know, it it is craziness. Um, and I know it was uh, it it definitely was instigated by our commander in chief. Um, you know, because I don't think this would be happening if we didn't have our current president. I I just don't. You know, people are saying he didn't cause it, but he's he's through his administration. He's called uh called these people to action to. And basically, and basically, to defy our democracy, to you know, interfere with our choosing Joe, uh, Joe Biden as our president, you know, the electoral process, and um, so, yeah, uh, sedition. I mean, I, I think a sedition also regarding our current president and all the Congress people who were going to oppose the electoral electoral college vote. You know, that's that's crazy. Well said, uh, Chris. I appreciate your comments. Um, Guy Beardsley, I don't know if you want to chime in here or if you're going to want to sort of... Well, you know, I've mentioned one thing yesterday that uh, you would ask me about it, and I still go along with, uh, with frustration that it got out of hand. Uh, yeah, so frustration, yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, uh, uh, I think that that would be the least we could say about what happened yesterday. Um, I just want to double-check that Guy is still on the phone with us because our phone interface is uh, dark at the moment. But are you still there, Guy? Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. We'll hope that uh, the phone system works properly for the rest of the show. Now, 
let me ask you, Richard, is, uh, is the, uh, for, has WPKN changed their locations yet? No, good question. Uh, no, we are busily at work. I, I bet we're as busy as uh, one of, uh, guy, uh, one of uh, Vincent Case Beehives uh, trying to make that, that move, which should uh, be affected by, I'm going to say, May or June. It's sometime later. I thought it was going to be this month. No, no, no that wouldn't be possible. <laughs> yeah, there's there. You can imagine. I mean, we have uh, I know those thousands and thousands, maybe even million uh, DVDs. You got to move, so, among other things. Yeah, the CDs. We have we have LP records. Um, we have uh, vinyl, I should say, and we, uh, you know, not to mention all the other infrastructure that needs to be move over, moved over there. We have to refurbish and redesign the space that we are going to occupy, which is down there in Fairfield Avenue in the entertainment district of Bridgeport, in what should be really quite um, very, uh, very lovely new digs down there. But there is less space for storage. So we'll have, uh, we'll have to make decisions about what CDs and uh, and and vinyl that we take over there, but um, it's exciting, it's daunting, um, but it's certainly sent a bolt of energy <laughs> through the WPKN staff. There's an incredible team of volunteers who's who's working on this. Who, who you know, I'm kind of throwing in when, when I can. We have to raise a lot of money to do this, and so the word is always out for our PKN listeners to donate to the move. You can do that at WPKN.org. And uh, it will be much most appreciated if you can chip in for that. We do need some bucks. Well, Guy, back to to, uh, the bucolic uh, subjects that normally... uh, Preoccupy us on this show. Okay, Vincent. Uh, Vincent is, um, I take it, is on board then, and uh, whenever you want to pull him in. Absolutely. We, Good. He's, but well. we'll, we're going to we're going to uh, we're going to try to bring him in about uh, twenty five after, I would say. Good show. Well, that's that, that gives me a little time here anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, we had some snow. Uh, back uh, two weeks or so ago, which I was really pleased with because that's exactly what I wanted, even though it was about 10 inches or some of it drifted to far more than that. But um, it was excellent. And then we had all that rain came along and just washed the snow away, uh, which uh, now we are deer dealing with bare ground again, uh, which is not, in my opinion, what desired at all. We definitely would like to have some snow cover or some sort of cover over top of the the garlic, among other things, the strawberries, among other things, and um, I think the uh, the the brambles of the raspberries and the blackberries they're gonna they're gonna be able to survive okay on this. So far, the temperatures have not been really bad, which is also very good because we have problems with the lavender when the temperatures get really down down low and with those winds uh, with the low temperatures uh, really require us and and ed has done considerable work about trying to cover up some of the more uh, some of the lavender which is more sensitive than others he's got about seven kinds of lavender here and um 
some of it is much more sensitive to cold temperatures. We're not going to plant those things again. And so uh, we've got others, though, that seem to hold it up pretty well. Uh, the English lavender seems to hold the temperatures, uh, hold low temperatures much better than the French lavender. And uh, so anyway, that's uh, one of the things we have to be concerned about. But uh, beyond that, uh, we've got, uh, you know, this is ideal time for if you can get into the soil to give your soils tests. And uh, also that's what we're doing. We're also very much involved here at, um, in this and uh, in our black garlic. Uh, we still have uh, a considerable amount of garlic, which we leave on the store is very important uh are you still here yep yep we're here just a little bit of odd phone noise okay uh, anyway i i think it's important to hold the garlic bulbs on the stalks because uh if you take them off the stalks and you keep them in any kind of warm conditions then uh, some of that little green little green uh, the stub which is in the center of the bulb will start to come up and out, and you would like to see that not happen until you get ready to uh, get the garlic uh, in the ground, and uh, it's about uh, mid of the mid-February, and uh, from that point on, then it might start to come on up. But you would like to see it not up out of the ground until about the mid-March. Uh, that's we got now, Chris. Uh, did you ever get your yes? Garlic in? Um, I actually got it in on the the, the second this this Good. past this past Saturday because it was a it was a warm day. Yeah. You know, I went for a bike ride, came back, got all the garlic in, and uh, put a good I don't know, I'm going to say a foot or two of leaves on top of it. That's oh, what I do. You're in good shape then. Excellent. Yep. Although it was a fruit day, but uh, that, that's okay. You could get it in. And uh, you did. Uh, I'm I'm glad you were able to get into the ground. Oh yeah. Well, was, like I said, it was uh, you know, it was kind of a warm day on Saturday. I think it was about 50 out, so that helped. Okay. Um, Let me. Um, I I wanted to bring up another subject here, uh, and that is fire cider. I don't know if, it, if either one of you or any of the people in the radio audience have uh, dealt with fire cider. But the fire cider is a, is a concoction, obviously, made up of a whole bunch of things and uh, then added some, uh, to make a full quart, you add uh, some, some actually organic uh, apple cider vinegar. And uh, so that uh, you have a question, I'd like to uh, just give you an idea of what it is. It is a really remarkable uh, concoction to have, and it's designed to have about uh, about an ounce a day, uh, which is the maximum. I, I have something less than that. I do is to take about a, a tablespoon and a half a day, and I don't think that's quite an ounce. But uh, at any rate, here are the ingredients, which is uh, to start with is horseradish, ginger, turmeric, garlic, onion, rosemary, cayenne pepper. Now, we don't put cayenne pepper in. We will go with a jalapeno. Uh, lemon, orange, black pepper, and honey. And uh, it's all mixed up in a in a in uh, one of these uh, machines that uh, mixes everything up nicely. And uh, it's um, it, you, then you add to that 
some apple cider vinegar to uh, make up about a quart. And so then you let it sit for about a month. Uh, every now and then you kind of shake it up or spin it up just to kind of mix it up. Uh, and you don't cap it at all. Uh, you just uh, let it sit there in a room temperature and, um, and let it uh, kind of ferment. And uh, it will do that. And then uh, at the end of the month, you strain out all the materials and you have this marvelous but pretty strong tasting uh, material liquid that is called fire, fire cider. And uh, fire cider has got some remarkable capabilities. It uh, probably is even better than black garlic as far as uh, enhancing your immune system and uh, actually a cardiovascular system also, although cardiovascular requires a lot of energy to, to really get it going. Nevertheless, that's fire cider. And uh, did you have any comments on that, or have you seen it before? I've, yeah, I've never heard of it. It does sound, um, I think I'm going to try it, because I think I actually have all those ingredients. Uh, Guy, I have heard of it, and uh, I've seen it. So they sell it commercially in uh, you know different different kinds of health food stores and stuff like that, but uh, you know what it is um, something I want to know more about, and I think our listeners, especially at this time of year, and with the challenges we face from the pandemic, would probably be fascinated uh, and very excited about doing this themselves. So could you run down the ingredients one more time? Oh yes, I'd be glad to. Uh, if you're uh, wait, wait, this, uh, we're, we're, we are recording the program, right? Yes, we are. Okay, so it's uh, horseradish and ginger, turmeric, and then garlic, onion, rosemary, and uh, what the, I have had it before is cayenne pepper, but we don't think you need to have that much pepper. We go along with uh, jalapeno instead of cayenne. Uh, then honey, lemon, orange, black pepper, and uh, then we that's all put together in a blender, and you add apple cider vinegar to that to make about a quart. And you let that sit for about uh, a month, uh, supposedly. Well, but uh, every now and then you just uh, agitate it a little bit. Hmm. But you don't cap it at all. You just go ahead and let it sit there. And uh, then strain out, at the end of the month, you strain out all the materials and have just the liquid left. And that liquid is, is pretty strong stuff because this apple cider vinegar mm -hmm. seems to overcome almost all the other flavors. Nevertheless, you know that there are other flavors in there. It's kind of difficult to pick out any particular one, at least it is for me. But maybe somebody with a better palate could mm -hmm. probably uh, identify the rosemary in particular. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the turmeric and uh, the ginger. And all that is uh, just adds a great... Yeah, I th you know, I've been taking that now for about, uh, oh, I guess the close on to for Christmas time when Janelle put all this stuff together uh, in Thanksgiving time. And so Christmas time, it was about ready to come on out and get set up. So it's really good. The reason we got this thing is one of my 
customers uh, in the, the Monroe market uh, decided that uh, I should uh, be aware of this, so she created a, a pint of it for me. And uh, we we like it. We like, and we think that it is really healthy, very healthy for the immune system, and even the cardiovascular system also. Yes, but uh, pretty strong. You, you don't want to take a whole lot of it at any one time, and so uh, that's the reason why we we do what we do with it. Just in terms of preparation, guy, the, the ingredients you first mentioned, like garlic, onion, uh, turmeric. Um, trying to think of the few others that are generally, you know, we encounter them in some kind of solid form or powdered form, I suppose. But assuming we're using raw garlic and raw turmeric and onion, etc., do you, you chop those up fine? Uh, yes, we definitely do. Okay. We put them in a blender, you know, and that almost mm -hmm. it puts them, uh, to takes them to uh, a very, very small uh, size. Great. Okay, and then and then you add. Then, then that's way. Then then anyway, you put the cider vinegar in. Then uh, it uh, really gets to a point where it infuses really beautifully. Right. Because of their small size. And in terms of the lemon juice and the orange juice, I think you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, right. we, you squeeze yeah. about how much of that would you squeeze in? Oh, not more than when we're talking about uh, setting up a quart. Not more than about uh, half of a cup. Okay, for each yeah. of those, each of those. Yeah. All right. So uh, just to let you know, Guy, I did I just uh, kind of uh, looked it up, and a lot of recipes come up online. Um, and I, it, I'm amused. One of these says uh, 672 hours and 30 minutes for preparation. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so so if, if, it, if one of our listeners missed it, they could just, uh, you know, uh, look up fire cider, and they'll find plenty. Well, it's a fabulous idea. It's a great idea for the winter. And, and so along with black garlic, man, we're ready to, you know, walk through. Yeah, I think we're ready through. to tackle uh, almost anything, right? Yeah, yeah. Look out, pandemic. We're coming for you. Um, the, um, uh, I'm going to ask you about the, the black garlic because everybody, um, you know, is tuned into that through your uh, many, many, um, you know, uh, explications of it and 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 promotions of it. W what's your supply now, and are people still coming for that? Yeah. So you still have some. You're producing it. Yes, we do. Right, we do. Well, uh, but uh, I have to alert everybody to the fact that our cookers, which are now five years old or four years old, that uh, well, one of them is five, that uh, they are not as precise and exact as they had when we first got them. And so we have to start checking the garlic at four days ever since we put it in. Four days after we put them in and uh, set the cooker going, uh, we have to check it because in some cases, depending upon the cooker, that garlic is ready in five days, and in others it takes up to six or seven days, and then you also have to be aware that the garlic will cook quicker if it's smaller than the, the larger garlic. So that's another thing to be concerned about. So it's easy to leave the garlic in too long, and then it gets too hard. In fact, it'll even come up to get to the point where it crystallizes, and it becomes 
I suspect uh, we haven't ever given a nutrition check on that, but I suspect that we've lost a lot of nutrition when it gets that when it gets that uh, that hard. Okay. Well, um, Guy, if you don't mind, and um, everybody's all ready. Uh, yeah, I let's think go with Vincent. We, I think we have Vincent ready to roll, and it's an interesting time to join him because, you know, it ain't warm out there. It's uh, the, the bees are going through, I guess, the deep uh, changes that they have to go through to survive the winter. So Vincent Kay, uh, proprietor of Swords into Plowshares Honey, are you with us, and what do you have to tell us? Yeah, I am here, and... Uh, 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 John Gradzik, uh, my helper, and I were, were in Westbrook, Connecticut this morning or this afternoon. Um, it's our afternoon now, but uh, we have a bee yard here that uh, is, we've had for quite some time. Uh, a friend of mine who's now living in South Carolina uh, uh, by the name of Frank Roberts, he and I um, established this bee yard back in the late 1980s because it was... Uh, uh, available. It was a nice piece of land. It was 20 acres, and it, it's kind of a, a no man's land because it's on one side there's I-95 with a lot of swamp, and on the other side of the bee yard there's a lot of swamp and a field and uh, the railroad tracks, Metro North. So if you hear some loud um, crashing going by, um, just wait. It only takes about 10 seconds or less, but the trains whiz by pretty close within 100 yards of us. And um, we established this bee yard because it had so many tulip poplar trees. Um, and, of course, tulip poplar produces a wonderful um, uh, late May honey when it's in bloom. Big, tall trees, straight trees. It's a semi-hardwood. And it, uh, uh, it has a big yellow cupped flower um, that really uh, is on the top. And they, they really reach. They like to have their feet in the water and their, their head in the sun as we say, and uh, I'm looking up now at all the seed pods. So the whole area is just inundated with tulip poplar, and we get a lot of honey off this bee yard every year. And uh, right now we're uh, taking taking stock of hives that have uh, uh, died over the course of the last, you know, maybe month or two, um, and uh, we're cleaning up those and getting them ready to put new bees in in the spring. Right now I'm sitting next to a big hive, uh, it's actually flying. Um, the bees don't hibernate in the winter. So they, when the temperature, and we're in full sun right now, so the bees are flying in and out. They're probably uh, going out on their cleansing flights, uh, uh, defecating and getting rid of all the, uh, the, the uh, waste products. Of, yeah, the remnants of what they've been eating, which is the honey. They eat honey all winter long, and um, that creates the metabolism or the heat to keep them warm. Um, they're probably also flying to to uh, to go get water. There's a lot of puddles left over from the snow, and uh, like I said, we're we're right in the middle of a swamp here, so um, there's plenty of water. But the one thing that's an indicator right now of where the hive is at in its development on a yearly basis is the bees are flying, but they're not bringing in any pollen. And um, uh, I was walking in the field yesterday, the same bee yard, and. There's some colt's foot, which is a type of flower, um, and witch hazel, which is another flower, which are in bloom right now. So there is pollen available um, and nectar, I suppose, but they're not interested in that because that's directly correlated to whether or not the queen is laying eggs. And I don't think she's clicked in yet um, with the light and with the temperatures to start laying a new uh, force of bees for the spring. 
So we, she may be laying a couple, but they really don't need the nutrition that pollen provides in the form of protein, nor do they really need the, the, uh, the nectar, uh, which, would, which would provide the uh, carbohydrates. But uh, we're in the bee yard, and it's, uh, it's kind of a geothermal bee yard. It's, it's, it's uh, got a great so- southern exposure, which I think as beekeepers, um, we're always trying to come up with ways that, um, you know, find places to keep bees and, and so that the bees will be happy and thrive and, and, and bring us lots of honey. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure that the, the, the hives are in, in the sunlight uh, most of the year. And that means facing them or exposing them to a south or southeast exposure at this latitude uh, on the planet. And so just like a, uh, a uh, solar panel, you have to arrange it to get the maximum um, exposure. Well, the bees appreciate that, and they, they certainly survive the winter a lot better because of it. Um, also a nice clean source of water, which the swamp provides uh, with all its springs and skunk cabbage and all of that um, is close by, within, within uh, 50 yards. So those are a couple of factors that you try to figure out before you even start keeping bees. And... Um, at a location, and this bee yard also is is got a slight rise to it, so it's actually facing the sun uh, even more. So it, it really um, we call it kind of a uh, well the geothermal bee yard because it just uh, it's always seems to thrive here and it's always warm and and uh, the winters even if there's a foot of snow on the ground the bees will be coming out and flying you know even if it's just a short distance they they circle and then head back into the hives but, you know it's fascinating. But, uh- you know, when you mentioned water and uh, also pooping, <laughs> I wonder how much water do bees need, and do they need that on a daily basis? And uh... well, no, they don't because there's water in honey. Honey is usually somewhere between um, 14 and 18 percent moisture, so they have it already. But they do like to have it in order to dissolve um, honey that may have granulated, um, and also, uh, you know, if, if the honey is what we call dry, which has um, little moisture, then they'll add um, water to it in order to consume it so that it's not so thick. So, so, so ex- um, explain yeah. the, the biology of that. They go out, they get a snoot full of water, they bring it back to the hive, and then they kind Just of... the way they would the nectar from the flower, right. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, they actually, if you have a bird bath um, or a waterer for the birds in the spring or summer... Um, for them to bathe in. Um, if there are honeybees nearby, they always come to bird baths because usually the bird baths are, have kind of a gritty base to them um, so that the bees can kind of walk down a little bit to the edge of the water where the, the water meets the uh, concrete or whatever, whatever the uh, uh, bird bath is made out of, and they don't have to fall in and drown, so they, they appreciate that. But in nature, you'll see them on like a sandbar or someplace. Um, now, this is just fresh water, not salt water. But um, even though we're near the shore, there's lots of fresh water everywhere. And um, uh, yeah, they, they don't really, you know, lap up water as, as you would say from a, a glass or a bucket or something like that. But they'll find a little sandy spot or even like a rock and the water will seep into the sand and they'll just kind of I guess sip it out. I mean, you'll see them doing it, and um, then they head back, you know. But sometimes the, the bank of a little brook or something is just covered with, with honeybees um, in the summer and um, also a bird bath. So people, yeah. if, if they're annoying your birds, will then just tip over the bird bath for a few days, and <laughs> the bees will find another source of water, and then you can resume 
with your birds. <laughs> That's the only that, way to fix fix a problem in nature. Man, you, every every show you come up with with a, with a whole new aspect to to be be life. Right, I, I I never heard you talk about the sun before regarding bees. But, uh, you know, it's it's an odd thing because it's a, it's a, a double-edged sword. I mean, in the in the winter we love it. In the summer, uh, you know, it, it's a stress factor on the bees. And um, I'll give you an example. Um, this year we had over 70 days of 90 degree heat, and that just is a very long time um, at that temperature. It was brutal to work in. Anyone who knows, I know, guy, if you're working your garlic, and certainly we were, um, we did a lot of hand weeding and. Uh, as we always do, it's um, it's brutal on, on, on helpers to do that in the heat. So, you know, you end up getting up at 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning. It's um, dragging around. But in any event, in the summer, we found that um, this past summer, that while it stressed the bees in the usual ways, you know, finding water and fanning the hive to keep it cool, which they do at the entrance, it also increased the life cycle of the mites that affect the bees. Now, we've been infested with these mites probably since the um, late 1980s, and uh, they've, they've arrived from Asia through international travel. Um, things are shipped all over the world, and that's how things move. All we need to look at is the pandemic to, to know that. But these mites came into the country, and it has changed beekeeping as we know it. And uh, I'm glad I experienced it before the mites came in because now if you – if you don't treat for mites, and, and there are a number of naturopathic treatments as well as miticides um, chemically that you can use, um, but if you don't use something, the mites will kill your bees. And so, but what we found in this long duration of heat um, was that it changed the life cycle of the mites ever so slightly so that um, they were getting able to reproduce more quickly and... Um, we found that this was also a, a big stress factor on the bees themselves. So we're going to have to figure out a treatment schedule um, for that, probably starting at the end of June. As soon as we pull the honey off the hives, we'll start treating for with the miticides, probably. That, that way, we'll, there'll be absolutely 100% no chance of getting any any chemical or anything like that in in the honey that for human consumption. So, Vincent, last question. Uh... As we have this packed show today, we have Tara Cook-Lippman standing by. But uh, yeah. I did want to ask you about the, you, you mentioned that the bees fly out of the hive all year round to, uh, to poop. And uh, is, that, is that pretty much uh, standard practice? I mean, they, they never foul their own nest? No, they don't. They, they always, um, they fly outside uh, the hive to defecate. That's the train going by now, by the way. I don't know if you can hear it. Uh, but it's um, they always defecate outside the hives, and if if there was a snow on the ground, you would see the yellow spots all over the snow. In fact, um, it's it's um, also how they carry their dead, the, high, the bees that die naturally of of old age, um, and they take the dead bees out of the hive and a uh, undertaker bee, as we call them, because they go through different stages in their lives, um, will take the dead bee and fly them off and drop them into the grass um, far enough away where any kind of uh, contamination or, uh, you know, decomposition would, would affect any the health of the hive. So they're very clean. They're very, um, they're, they're, they're a perfect society. And uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because it's, uh, 
it's what we have. And, you know, I'm standing here now, and, and they're, they're flying uh, quite readily in and out of the hive. Um, and uh, the dogs don't like them, but uh, <laughs> we're, uh, we're pleased to be here in the bee yard. And uh, I hear a dog now. Yep. Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, we're, we're here, and uh, we'll probably start um, processing beeswax um, for candle making, which we do. Um, and that's a byproduct of the honey harvest. Um, but as you know, the, the bees make wax from a gland in their body and secrete that to produce the comb, which we then, when it's full of honey, um, slice off a layer to expose the honey and put into the centrifuge. But those cappings that we slice off, we, we drain and filter and, and, uh, and, uh, and heat, actually. We boil them so to get all the, uh, uh, the impurities out. And you get this beautiful uh, raw beeswax, which um, we make candles, and we, we sell about a thousand pairs a, a year. So, it's uh, we keep we keep busy even in the winter. I was going to ask about beeswax, and that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the few when beeswax is first produced, guy, um, it's an interesting thing. It's snow white. It's the most beautiful, pure, pure white. And what gives it the yellow color is the pollen on the bee's legs. So as these bees are bringing back pollen to store as food, the dye from the um, pollen actually, um, or the pigments from the pollen, dye the uh, the wax a yellowish color. Wow. Hmm. Beautiful. That? That's incredible. That gives yeah. us a great deal of information that I would always <laughs> try to find out. Thank you so if much. You, if you're buying beeswax, um, the more... White or not bleached. Of course, some some people are selling bleached beeswax, and that I, I, you know I don't really I'm not interested in doing that. But it's um, some people sell it that way. But the brighter the yellow color, um, the purer the beeswax. When you get kind of olivey green and kind of going towards brown, well, there's been a lot of impurities in that beeswax, and it's probably been overheated and slightly burned in the process of filtering. So mm. that's how you know. Um, we sell high-grade beeswax to some industries that use it, as well as um, other candle makers. Um, and uh, who else? Let's see, artists also are using it now. Um, people who are making these um, beeswax wraps for food, um, they buy beeswax from us. So it's, it's kind of an interesting, and then we sell candles. So we sell a great, great 10 inch tapered solid beeswax candle. Um, and we sell a lot of them. So, and that's Vincent it, it K. Helps. <laughs> the, the Vincent K, the owner, founder, and proprietor of Swords into Plowshares. Honey, Vincent, it's been another fabulous adventure with you today. Uh, we'll talk to you all again in the beginning of February. And uh, good luck out there. Stay warm. Uh, I know you're having a vigorous and uh, exhilarating day out there in Westbrook, right? Well, thank you, and, and let's all stay safe and work hard to, to keep it that way. And uh, wear a mask, everyone. It helps. Mm. And yeah. uh, and let's be patient and kind to each other because this stuff in Washington is is uh, been brewing for some time. It doesn't surprise me what happened yesterday at all. And um, it's been uh, for people who are surprised by it. I find it kind of amazing. But in any event. Uh, <laughs> Let's try to work together. Okay. Thanks, Vincent. Well said. All right. We'll talk to you all soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. And uh, now we are joined <coughs> by, I think, Connecticut's favorite uh, food and food safety activist, Tara Cook-Littman. Tara, thank you so much for being with us today. 
It's my pleasure, Richard. You are always too kind to me. Um, <laughs> first, I just want to say that uh, I was very excited to hear from you, and I reflect back on the last time I was with you. It was the week the world shut down, and we were elbow bumping at that time. Um, and just everything has changed so much since then. Is that right? Was it li- literally last, what, February Would it or have March? been March? It was in March, yes. <laughs> I was with you in March, and, and the world literally um, shut down. I remember being there and wondering if I should have even been there <laughs> oh, that's, at that time. Yes, it was, excuse me, <coughs> it, it was right on that, uh, right at that critical moment. Yeah. I, I had just gotten back from <clears throat> Cuba right at the beginning of March. I actually had a gig on March 8th, which could have been a super spreader event right. uh, because there were like 350 people packed into a catering center <laughs> in uh, somewhere up in Monroe. But uh, we, we, we dodged a bullet there. But anyway, so great to have you. And uh, I got to say, we um, are limited in time. We have to um, go to announcements at, at 12.55. Yeah, so no problem. Why don't we get right down to the meat of the matter? Uh, we have a new administration coming in, um, in spite of the best efforts of uh, the um, recalcitrant uh, political activists and uh, strange, um, I, I call them the orc army, uh, out there trying to prevent it. But on January 20th, Joe Biden will take over. Uh, and you have some very interesting perspective on the appointment, his appointment to the Department of Agriculture, the Secretary of Agriculture, uh, for uh, the um, yes, uh, the Tom Vilsack. Yeah, yes. So what if, if if he ends up going through, I don't know that it has been formalized um, that he does plan to appoint him, but it, it seems like it's heading in that direction. But yeah, I mean. Man, yesterday I woke up just elated with the news of Georgia and that um, we might actually be able to get some really important environmental and food policy things through. Um, And then how the day ended with just such other devastation and, and, um, you know, being so scared for our very republic. But um, looking at things from more of a hopeful view, because we have to try to, um, we certainly have a lot of work to do um, to deal with what happened yesterday because those people are not going away. We may get rid of Trump, but uh, somebody else could take the mantle for them and and we'll be in big trouble. So um, I just want to put that on the side. But hopefully with a new administration that's more concerned with climate change and food policy, Um, I really do hope that we can uh, implement some good changes. And one of the first things I really want to start to look at is is GMO labeling again, because Tom Vilsack was the person responsible for bringing us the DARK Act that ultimately passed Congress, which, by the way, has never been implemented, right, because they assumed Hillary Clinton was going to become president in 2017 and instead Trump, and they've done nothing with the DARK Act. So even though... The Dark Act was terrible, and we never would have had true transparency in labeling. Um, that hasn't even gone through. So if Tom Vilsack is the person, or if we get someone better than him, I really think that they need to revisit GMO labeling and fix that horrible law um, and give us true transparency in food. But that's just the beginning. I mean, we really need to <clears throat> become... Um, I don't want to use the word aggressive, but I kind of mean aggressive, aggressive in in our stance with uh, 
um, with fighting climate change and starting to ensure that all Americans have access to healthful, affordable food. I mean, we need a massive change, and the two really go hand in hand. So that's kind of where I am right now. So, first of all, remind us what the Dark Act is. Uh, It still exists, as you say, not not, uh, implemented to its full degree. But tell us what that is and and what might happen with it under a Biden administration. So after people worked so hard at the state level in Connecticut and Vermont and Maine to pass GMO labeling laws, the federal government passed a law that preempted all the state laws, basically just wiped it out as if it never happened, and then passed a law um, that called for GMO labeling, but not on the package. QR codes or in websites, these really crazy versions of of what really is a non-label. Um, but again, that has never been implemented. So the state's state laws were preempted with nothing. And there actually is a lawsuit that I happen to be a plaintiff in that was brought by Center for Food Safety to sue the federal government to say, you preempted the states with nothing. And so either put GMO labeling into effect or let the states move on with their own laws. So we are working at, at you know, parallel paths here. Um, but Vilsack, who I sat in nine hours of meetings with, was no friend to GMO labeling, no friend to the climate, no friend to farm workers. Um, so I'm really concerned about the possibility that Joe Biden does follow through with that appointment and that he um, gets confirmed by the Senate. And He's a real problem. So, Tara, I just wanted to say, but he is friends with big agriculture. Big-time friends with big agriculture. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you from sitting in that room with him, I was there with four other people that were on my side, and then I was facing five people from the other side. And we're talking about the CEOs of Hershey's and Nestle, the head of the Corn Growers Association, the head of the Soybean Growers. I mean, big ag and big food were in the room, and then we were facing off with them. Vilsack was on their side. He made it very clear. He made attempts at seeming like he was neutral, but he was not neutral. They were trying to get us to accept the Dark Act at that time, and we refused, and then they pushed it through anyway. Um, so the Dark Act, I don't think I actually said what it was. Well, I kind of did. But um, the reason it was called the Dark Act is because it was the deny Americans the right to know. Um, and that's why we call it the Dark Act. Mm -hmm. So we have to fix that, and we have an opportunity to fix it now with a Democratic Congress, um, tiebreaker Democratic Congress in the Senate and and President Biden. What are the chances that... uh that the, given the, the new balance of power in the, in the Senate, and, and of course Democrats still control the House by a mar- now a margin, that uh, Biden will be emboldened to to be a little more progressive in terms of his appointment of a uh, Secretary of Agriculture. Uh, for example, I think I think it's, her name is Marsha Fudge. Yeah, was one that seemed totally appropriate because she deals. She has always dealt with in her congressional action uh, behavior and activities uh, with agricultural issues, and she was kind of given a consolation prize of another uh, agency, which she has a whole not a whole lot of preparation for. And Tom Vilsack was uh, just ushered in 
as the suggested uh, Secretary of Agriculture. Yeah. What, are the, what are the chances that um, with pressure, somebody like Marsha Fudge could uh, be the uh, designee? Yes, she was the advocate's choice. That's who we would have wanted to see in there. Now, I, I don't know your guess is as good as mine, but I have heard rumblings, and I don't know how true it is, that um, Vilsack was going to be a very temporary appointment just to kind of fix the um, fix the USDA and bring it back to where it was because, you know, Trump has destroyed everything. So um, I guess the thinking was put someone in who knows the agency to kind of put it back in place and then bring someone else in who would deal with more of the policy stuff. So so we'll see. I mean, there are definitely people still fighting against the Vilsack appointment. I've certainly reached out to um, both our senator, senators and hope you all will, too, to let them know that you think Vilsack is a terrible idea. Mm. Um, but... You know, hopefully, if he even does get appointed, then the rumblings I've heard are true, and he's not going to be there for the long term. Well, we, we are down to our last uh, 30 seconds, uh, uh, so I just want to <laughs> make sure I thank you so much, Tara Cook-Lippman, for being with us today. And since it was such a short visit, can we get you back uh, real soon to talk about the progress Anytime. Um, and I'd, I'd also love to talk about things going on in Connecticut. It's going to be a bizarre year for legislation, but that doesn't mean that we don't try at all. So um, mm -hmm. anytime, I'd love to come back. Well, yeah. it's, it's been a great pleasure to be with you today. And, of course, Chris Ferriero, Guy Beardsley, uh, our anchor, our, uh, our rock <laughs> to whom we uh, re refer all uh, issues of, uh, you know, small farm and uh, farming and, and other issues. Thank you so much for joining us on the Organic Farm Stand today. And we're going to go to some announcements. We'll be back in two weeks. Have a great uh, and very uh, exhilarating, chilly, but crystalline winter as we approach. Uh, thank you, Richard. Thank you so much, all. Talk to you all soon. Right. Stay well. Thanks, Tara. This is the Gaiagram. Environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. Some one million people in South Sudan have been displaced or isolated for months by the worst flooding in memory, with the intense rainy season a sign of climate change. The waters began rising in June, washing away crops, swamping roads, and worsening hunger and disease in the young nation, struggling to recover from civil war. Now famine is a threat. Meanwhile, the researchers for Climate Action Network South Asia are reporting that the growing impacts of climate change have already pushed more than 18 million people to migrate within South Asian countries, but that could more than triple in three decades if global warming continues on its current path. Nearly 63 million people could be forced from their homes by 2050 in the region as rising seas and rivers swallow villages and drought-hit land no longer supports crops. The German athletic powerhouse Adidas revealed some of its sustainability plans for the future, stating that more than 60% of its products will be made with sustainable materials in 2021. This marks the next step in Adidas's mission to end plastic waste. Adidas is a partner of the environmental organization Parley for the Oceans and has said it will look to produce 17 million pairs of shoes with recycled plastic waste from beaches and coastal regions. The statement also revealed 
revealed Adidas's goal, in partnership with its suppliers, of achieving global climate neutrality by 2050. The efforts include projects to reduce carbon emissions and water consumption, as well as to preserve an intact environment. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria has